Hello, and welcome to the Cautionary Tales edition of Slate Money, your guide to business, finance, and all manner of weird two-and-a-half-thousand-year-old cautionary tales. I'm Felix Hammond of Axios, and I'm in a fabulous recording studio in Oxfordshire with none other than Mr. Tim Harford. Hi, Tim. Um, What are you plugging? (laughs) So, as you know, Felix, I work for the Financial Times, but I am plugging a new podcast called Cautionary Tales. Uh, It is out in a first season of eight episodes, and it is full of stories about all kinds of mishaps, fiascos, uh, heists, crashes, disasters, catastrophes, and in each case... Uh, a little bit of zesty social science. What can we actually learn from what went wrong, from these true stories of disaster? And how can we avoid meeting such terrible fates ourselves? And, of course, we are joined from Brooklyn by Anna Shemansky of Breaking Views. Hi, Anna. Hello. We are going to talk about all of these weird cautionary tales, or at least a couple of them on this episode. We're going to talk about Christmas cards, because tis the season. And I kind of want to talk about the black market in Chinese sand, which is one of my favorite stories of the year. All of that coming up on Slate Money. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So, Tim, you are applying social science and some kind of economics and that kind of thing to a bunch of stories of, as you say, thefts and disasters. And whenever people do this, I think of a conversation I had with Danny Kahneman once, the great economist and yeah. behavioral economist. Well, a psychologist, really, we should say, but a psychologist so awesome, they gave him the Nobel Prize in economics anyway. Exactly. And he did a whole bunch of research into our biases and the things which we kind of just wind up doing, even though, like, really we know we shouldn't do them and probably don't even want to do them. And I said, well, you've discovered all of these biases. Isn't that great? Because now we can overcome our biases. And he's like, don't be stupid. Just because you know they're there doesn't mean you can stop doing it. And so I, the, the whole premise of your podcast kind of worries me on some <laughs> level because i have this idea that it's, i'm going to listen supposed to make you feel anxious the whole they are supposed to worry you i that i'm going to learn about all of these mistakes that are just human and that people make and then i'm going to do them anyway and i'm going to go but tim told me not to do them and there's not uh, do you think that if i listen to my your podcast that that will in any way stop me from making these mistakes. Yes, I mean one of the one of the the podcasts, uh, one of the episodes is is all about the lessons from that time they gave the Oscar to La La Land when in fact it should have gone to Moonlight. And I explain the implications for um, the financial crisis and nuclear meltdowns and so on. But the, but the the point I make is that in that case, the superficial story is the accountant in the wings gave the wrong envelope 
to Warren Beatty, and then Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway went on stage, and they didn't really know what was going on, and so they read out the wrong film because they had the wrong envelope. And so some people say, well, it's Warren Beatty's fault, and some people say it's Faye Dunaway's fault, and most people say it's Brian Cullinan's fault, Brian Cullinan. The being, starstruck accountant. Yes, who was, who was tweeting photographs of Emma Stone uh, from backstage when he should have been giving the right envelope to Warren Beatty. But the point is, if you just sit there and go, well, we, um, it, was, it was human error, it was a human mistake, we need better humans, not going to happen. But is there a better way to design the system? Yes. And in that particular case, I go uh, back to the, to the work of the sociologist Charles Perrault, who sadly died qu- quite recently, an expert in disaster. And I go all the way back to Galileo, who wrote about this kind of problem. But as, uh, but as and, you say, like, it's, it, you know... People have been relying on smart humans for a long time. I remember having this conversation a lot during the financial crisis yeah. where people were like, the humans were dumb and they should have been smarter. And, Never works, yes. And then I was like, yeah, but the whole point of a financial system that's remotely robust is it needs to be robust to dumb humans. Yes, absolutely. Um, Anna, do you think that we can ever build an economy or a si- financial system that is robust to dumb humans? Probably not 100%, but I do think it's interesting to look at, you know, some of the algorithmic trading systems and how they are somewhat trying to counter those biases. Now, of course, those algorithms are originally kind of created by humans, so that's an issue. But in theory, some of the they're supposed to be kind of self-teaching. So, uh, you know, maybe at some point, the you know, the fewer and fewer humans we have and the more and more machines, maybe, maybe, maybe the I key. I, yeah. I really don't buy that. Tim and I, just before we, we started recording, we're talking about the Gaussian copula function, which uh, was... As we do. As you do. Just when, hanging like, out when, in the when studios. When Tim and I hang out in recording studios, what we talk about is the Gaussian copula function. And for those of those late money listeners who don't know what I'm talking about, I wrote a big cover story about it for Wired in April 2009, which predates Slate Money. But it's basically exactly what you're talking about, Anna, which is an algorithm which was trained on a whole bunch of market prices and didn't have any real human input and wound up um, more or less destroying the entire global financial system. So on one level, I... Yeah, no, I just don't don't buy it. Tim, do you buy it? Uh, You can certainly try to make the system more robust. I mean, what are the issues um, that people who think about accidents and why accidents happen, uh, one of the issues that comes up a lot is that people put safety systems in uh, in pr- uh, place and the safety systems just create new ways for things to fail because they make it more and more and more complicated. There are certain ways of thinking about safety that make things simpler and certain ways that make it more complicated. I think it's interesting, you know, to look at, you know, different funds and how they've used these kind of more complicated trading systems and why some have done well and some have failed. And I feel like you have something like long-term capital management and they believe... blessed memory. Yes. They believe that their system was so perfect that then they took these outlandish risks because they thought, well, no, you know, this, this can't possibly fail. Where you have other places like, you know, Renaissance technology, where they clearly seem to understand that the models couldn't be perfect. And so you had to kind of mitigate risk because they knew it couldn't be perfect. So I think maybe that's a little yeah, bit of the balance. But I think both of them are risk takers. I think what we saw in the financial crisis was that people were buying a whole bunch of AAA rated mortgage backed securities, not because they were convinced that they had the mathematical ability to calculate the risk, but precisely because 
they were what's known as informationally insensitive investors, and they just saw that AAA rating, and they, ah, that'll do. That means there's no risk there. And all of this money started piling into them without really people thinking about it because they felt they didn't need to think about it because it had a AAA rating. And I think that's a little bit what Tim is talking about, that when you build a safety system, like the AAA rating is in its own way a safety system. It's a way of saying you don't you're safe now, you're on safe ground. And the that, credit default swap, I think, is a more a more direct parallel yeah. where you say, Don't don't worry about this, you're insured by these guys called AIG, who by the way, have written two thousand seven hundred billion dollars <laughs> worth of insurance for other people. But don't worry, I'm sure I'm sure nothing possibly could go wrong with that scheme. But there is a way that there's one safety mechanism where the Anatad Marty at Stanford University is famously quite keen on a safety system for banks, at least, where she says, banks should just have way, way more equity than they do right now, right? Banks, by their nature, are highly leveraged institutions. Um, Before the financial crisis, they were like 30 to 1. Now they're more like 10 to 1. And she's like, no, they should be like 1 to 1 or maybe 2 to 1 leveraged. They should should have lots more equity and fund themselves much less with debt. And that would just make them safer, do you buy that one? I kind of I think she's right about that, isn't she? So I think that on the one hand, having banks, especially more systemic banks, having a bigger capital buffer, a bigger equity buffer, makes some sense. But I think when you're talking about expanding it to those extreme levels, I really start to question what would be the side effects of that, because you would be making the banks less profitable. And if you're making that bank less profitable, they're going to take risks in other ways. So I'm not saying that it's possible that you might make part of the system less apt to the type of crises we saw in the past. But my guess is it would then create some type of other issue that would create a crisis that we can't even really foresee now. Can I can I talk about a two and a half thousand year old antecedent to uh, the the financial crisis and the whole the Gaussian copula? Does this only this? if it involves an oracle? Because yes. I feel like because we, that was the other thing we were talking about earlier. That if you were a young woman in ancient Greece, your job opportunities were maybe not quite as broad as say you know Anna Shemansky has um, available. Um, you couldn't go become a blogger or a podcaster, but the best job, I'm convinced about this, was to become an oracle. Yeah, you could then speak with the voice of Apollo himself. Uh, That is a wonderful gig. I mean, I've got no idea whether it was a wonderful gig, but it was a a culturally significant gig. So people who wanted their questions uh, about the future answered would go to the oracles. The most famous oracle was was at the Temple of Delphi, and they would make offerings, and this priestess, speaking with the voice of a god, would answer their questions. And uh, I relate in one of the episodes of Cautionary Tales, I talk about this famous story where King Croesus uh, of Lydia, the fabulously wealthy King Croesus, goes to the oracle and says, shall I invade the Persian Empire? And the oracle says, well, if you go to war with Persia, you will destroy a mighty empire. And uh, Croesus goes, that sounds great. Let's go to war. And of course, he's defeated and he does destroy a mighty empire. It's, it's his own. But I, but I spoke to a, a professor of ancient history, who's a friend of mine, who thinks about what the oracles meant to the Greeks. And, and her point is, the Greeks knew when you ask an oracle, that's not the end of it. It, it. Just like when you consult the Gaussian copula function, just like when you look and you see that something's AAA rated, just like when you... Uh, check out your GPS and your GPS says that this is the right way to go. 
that's just the start. You can't just accept what's coming out of that black box, whether the black box is a priestess or whether the black box is your phone or whether the black box is a financial uh, algorithm, a financial function. You need to then think about the answer. And the, the legend of King Croesus is all about a guy who didn't think about the answer he got, which, by the way, was perfectly accurate. So uh, I, I, I want to do a whole extra segment. We're going to have a whole segment on GPS in a minute. Yeah. Um, but is it actually realistic for us to treat our GPS with skepticism? But I feel like it's so built into our lives in so many ways that at some point you just you have this sort of heuristic of the GPS is right. And we just don't have the mental capacity to treat everything, including a GPS, with that kind of level of skepticism. Well, but I think it depends on the circumstance, right? Because if if you're looking at your GPS and you're trying to say, like, the arrow seems to be pointing this way, but I think I'm supposed to go the other way and you, you know, follow the GPS and it's wrong, like, that might not be a bigger issue. But if you know you're like, you're near the edge of a cliff, then that becomes a much bigger issue. So I, I think it all comes down to, you know, where you're putting your energies in terms of where you're skeptical depends on the circumstance. Or one of the stories that I tell in the podcast, which is that terrible story about a woman who drove through Death Valley relying on her GPS. She didn't have a map and the GPS let her down. We're not sure exactly why, whether it was malfunctioning, whether it had the wrong map, whether the connection was faulty, whether she misread it. We don't know the details, but we it did did not end well. It is it is 115 degrees in the shade, and the GPS got her lost. And the lesson there is, okay, fine, if you're just going to drive down to, to a, a restaurant that you've not been to before, fine, rely on the GPS. If you're going through Death Valley, bring a map, make sure you've got a phone signal, make sure you've got water. You are betting your life that this thing is going to work, and you, you shouldn't be betting your life that it's going to work. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So let's continue on the subject of GPS, and specifically GPS around the port of Shanghai, and specifically the way that the port of Shanghai, just like all ports, is really run on GPS, which is this glorious technology, which is subsidized by the US government and allows everyone in the world to know where they are at all points. Great public good. And they put little GPS transponders onto all of the ships so that if you're navigating this incredibly, the, the incredibly busy waters around Shanghai, you know where all the ships are at all times and you don't run into them. And this works perfectly well, doesn't it, Tim? It works perfectly well until it doesn't. There's this <laughs> a, a, astonishing story in so the MIT Technology Review yeah. where – the, it's a brilliant piece of storytelling as well, where a captain of a ship is just looking at other ships on his GPS screen and the ship just disappears and then it appears in, in dock and then it appears back on the river and then it goes back to dock and, and he's, what, what, what's going on? And then he realized the, realizes the ship has never actually moved at all, but where it is on his GPS locator keeps changing. And thus begins the story of, of what G is happening to GPS in, in Shanghai. And it turns out to be this thing called GPS spoofing, which 
I, for one, had no idea it even existed. But of course, like the minute you say GPS spoofing, it's like, oh, well, of course it exists. Mm-hmm. That must be a thing. That must be a thing. And the idea is that if you're a criminal with certain um, incentives, you have the incentive to make people think that certain boats are in certain places at certain times. And rather than moving the boats, you just spoof their GPS system and everyone just knows that that's where the boat is because everyone conflates the GPS signal with the boat. Absolutely. One of the things that fascinated me about this story was just uh, that the the guesses as to who might be trying to do that. Was it the Chinese government or was it, was it, and this sounds like a thing that definitely must exist in Star Wars. <laughs> was it sand pirates? It was sand <laughs> pirates. So Anna, did you read the story? I did. And how awesome is the concept of sand pirates? I, I think that is pretty amazing. And it also just brings into kind of, it brings into the lens like how important cement has it has been to kind of the growth in China. And obviously you need sand to create cement. So just to rewind here, since we're talking about two and a half thousand year old, you know, stories, concrete is a two and a half thousand year old technology. Actually, more than that, it's like a four four thousand year old technology. Uh, actually, they if you uh, consult my book, Fifty Things That Made the Modern Economy, <laughs> it's a, it's about a ten thousand year old technology. They found they found concrete in ancient Turkey, but uh, the reinforced concrete is much uh, more recent, of course. But yes, as the the point that Anna's making about about the importance of the sand for concrete, which is this incredibly important building technology, it, it, desert sand won't do. So right, Anna, right. tell, us, tell us about sand in China. What is, the, what is going on with sand in China and why would the need for sand to build Chinese cities result in GPS spoofing in the port of Shanghai? Well, I, uh, you know, just caveat that my my knowledge of sand politics is somewhat limited, <laughs> but it, it appears that the type of sand that you could kind of, I, I believe, like dredge up in, in these ports, near these ports, was the type of sand that is the best type of sand for the building materials that people want to make. And consequently, because of that, what you've seen is a lot of sand from different areas has been taken then and it's, and it's caused a lot of problems. Um, and so consequently, the Chinese government has put caps and, and strict limits on the sand that can be taken. And Which just works, like right? anytime you have something that's profitable and you put caps on it, you create a black market. So this is this is the glorious thing. So basically what you have is these boats trawling the river, literally trawling the river, sticking these big pipes down to the riverbed. In the middle of the night. In the middle of the night, pulling up hundreds of tons of riverbed sand because riverbed sand is the best sand to be making cement out of. Do you, do you know why, by the way? No, tell me why. It's it's because desert sand, because there is a lot of sand in the Sahara, for example. Like, there's yeah, yes. plenty of sand. Um, it's it's too smooth. It's been blown by the wind and it's uh, it's spherical. Whereas the ocean sand, sand from beaches, sand from rivers, uh, hasn't been rubbed smooth and is, and is not spherical. It's kind of all knobbly. Apparently. I am not a sand engineer, but that is my understanding. <laughs> but, but it stands to reason that knobbly sand would be would be better for making cement because you want it to stick to itself. I think we all sound very authoritative on this point <laughs> yes, now. Yes. No, no one is going to say <laughs> We've we're all wrong. read one article. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm, you know, as everyone knows, I'm a bit of a brutalism nerd and I love <laughs> concrete and I have studied that, but I have not really... Well, the one thing I know about concrete is that it's very local, that... Concrete buildings in cities, like, you know, 
Boston, concrete buildings are generally redder and Manhattan concrete buildings are generally grayer and that kind of thing. Because the sand is heavy. Because because sand is heavy and so you just use the local sand and local sand has its own local coloring and and that kind of feeling of terroir in concrete is one of the things that I absolutely (laughs) love. But, you know, it turns out that the best... Pinot Noir grapes uh, in of China are not Pinot Noir grapes at all. They're Yangtze River sand or whichever river is in Shanghai. I'm quite bad on geography. And these pirates want to just import their sand into the port under dead of night. And the way they do that is by making everyone think that all of the other ships are moving around in a perfect circle we think we, we think i think right. we're not we're not sure we still don't know but yes one of the one of the lovely details from this article was that um if you looked at everyone's uh, strava routes because strava it works on gps it's this tracking system that people sign up for they if they're cyclists or if they're joggers and uh, the the people who were investigating this realized that everyone's strava routes were suddenly forming like this this perfect circle in the middle of shanghai it's like i don't think that everyone is just circ- cycling around and around and around which There's also reminds me of of the time that a secret cia base was yes. discovered on strava do you remember that story, Anna? I do remember that story. And I say this because I am an avid Strava user. <laughs> and yeah, it was basically because, you know, if you're, you know, if you run or you cycle, as, as Tim said, you're going to be using this. And you had people on this base putting using their Strava. And then people realize, oh, it looks like, you know, all of these people who all of these Americans just happen to be running in this particular area. And it and it does raise that, you know, that question as as more and more of us use this type of technology that's tied to our location that just opens up all of these other fields for for potentially crime or you know or espionage or whatever the metadata matters it turns out so um anna as the as the neoliberal with the market solution to all problems what what is the market solution to the problem of river pirates in china <laughs> sand pirates i should say uh, sand pirates yeah i mean it's it's a good question because i mean i think there's a a very good reason why you don't want all of this river sand to be taken because that is going to have a clear economic impact. Maybe there's some way that you could kind of factor in that negative externality or something to kind of the price so that you could get these people kind of out of this underground economy into the um, into the actual economy. I don't know. I mean, there, there's not there is not a great solution to sand piracy because, you know, Pigivian just like any type of piracy, sand. like when you have a good that is very valuable, then people are probably going to want to get it. <laughs> And, and this is this is not even the weirdest uh, sand piracy story. I mean, there was a whole beach in the Caribbean stolen. I seem to remember a couple of years ago, somebody just came and stole the beach. It does happen <laughs> for concrete, or just to move the beach somewhere else? I I forget. No, I think I think yellow sandy beaches like that sand is super valuable in like beach resorts that where the sand has a habit of blowing away or getting washed away. But so they think always about have the, to import the beautiful new sand. brutalist buildings you could make think about that terroir a golden a golden concrete if anyone has examples of like golden sand getting turned into concrete and making a beautiful golden concrete building let me know because i will make a pilgrimage this segment went to some very weird places (laughs) it did go to some very strange i like it it is ryan here and i have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. 
I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay. You need to give us the TLDR of your Christmas card story, which is glorious. Yeah. So people used to send more holiday cards in the past, but I, I was really struck. 1974, a sociologist called Phil Kuntz. Kuntz. Not sure how to pronounce the name. <laughs> On the radio. Yeah. <laughs> how, would you, how would you say that? Anyway, K-U-N-Z. Philip Kuntz, shall we say. Uh, Philip Kuntz uh, received just this enormous number of holiday cards. And the reason he had received so many is because he and a colleague had sent out 600 cards to total strangers picked at random from the phone book. And some got these very high status cards with uh, very fancy uh, calligraphy and or from, from Dr. and Mrs. Kunz. And uh, some of them were, were much kind of lower status. They were from Phil and Joyce. And more than 100 people felt obliged to reply to these cards, including an extraordinary reply where this this group invited themselves and their children and their St. Bernards for a week's <laughs> holiday with the Cunz family. Um, which the fact which is they, glorious. Yeah, which is absolutely brilliant. And they never, they, they had no idea who these people are, but they were like, oh yeah, we remember you. Uh, we're going to come and stay with you. Which is, I mean, all power to them. You get a Christmas card from someone who sounds like they're quite rich, um, who are on the way to this place where you're going on holiday and you're like, well, rather than pay for a hotel, why don't we just stay with these people who send us a Christmas card? If they sent us a Christmas card, they can't be that bad. Yeah, they, they must they, know Especially something. if they're looking after our St. Bernard's. So it's, it's, I think it's a really interesting illustration of this kind of grim circle of reciprocity that the Christmas card list sometimes engenders, sort of people just feeling obliged to send Christmas cards because they receive Christmas cards. And there's a bit of social climbing too because the people who received the the high-status Christmas cards were more likely to respond. But what really struck me about this story, which I, I, I knew this story, but I didn't know that somebody tried to replicate it. A guy called Brian Meyer replicated it about three years ago. He wanted to investigate whether people responded differently to a Merry Christmas versus a Happy Holidays, but he couldn't investigate that theory because nobody replied. Basically, he sent out 800 cards and he got about about 10 replies. So the, the reply rate collapsed from uh, 20% to less than... Two percent, and you don't think this is just a standard replication crisis? This is you think something has actually changed? It was replicated as well about twenty years ago, and and it replicated absolutely perfectly. So this is this is that something has changed. I think. Anna, what's your theory? Well, I mean, I think it's just in in general, people don't send as much in the mail now. And I mean, I've even seen this with my own family because um, you know my my parents' generation and even right below, like they all sent cards. Whereas now, like me and my sisters and our generation. A lot of people don't until they have kids, and if they don't have kids, they just never send cards. It just it is it's bec- the social tradition is just changing. I think that's exactly it. It's not that people. I mean, you were talking a little bit, Tim, about how 
like people get a little bit skeeved out by receiving a Christmas yeah, card from I someone they don't know. But I think a lot of it is they are perfectly happy to reply, except for they don't reply with physical mail anymore. That's not how they communicate. And if they don't have the email address of that person, then they just won't reply. Uh, so, yeah. So I think, um, I don't think it's just that people don't send as many Christmas cards because, I mean, people still do send Christmas cards, just not as many. And presumably if you get a Christmas card, then that's kind of a more special thing and maybe more demanding of a reply. Yeah, but you would, rep- you would still want to reply just by attaching an email, you, right? You, you might well. But I think what's going on is previously, when in the 1970s, people got these Christmas cards from strangers and they didn't know they were Christmas cards from strangers. They were like, I don't remember who Joyce and Phil are. That's terrible of me. And people would make inquiries. People would try really hard to figure out who Joyce and Phil were. Whereas nowadays, you get a Christmas card from Brian Mayer, and you're like, hmm, I don't think I know a Brian Mayer. You check your Facebook friends. You check your email contacts. You search on Gmail. You're like, I don't know a Brian Mayer. I just got a Christmas card from a total stranger. That's weird. So I think people just, this time people knew it was from a stranger, whereas previously they assumed they must just be being forgetful. And or felt or it's maybe not as weird because we all get mail all the time, which is sort of fake personalized. And ignore From it. people that yeah. we don't know. And like, right. we, we now live in a world of where... I don't know about you guys, but I would say that 90% of the mail I get is junk and 90% of the junk mail pretends to be personalized. So things which pretend to be personalized get thrown in the trash every day in my household. You're going to be telling me next, Felix, that your Facebook friends are not really your friends. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a whole like ontological question, which I'm not sure I want to go into. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Let's have a numbers round. I'm going to start Start with 130 million, which is the number of space debris objects in orbit, which are larger than a millimeter. And if you're in orbit and you're, even if you're just a millimeter, you can cause a lot of damage if you bump into something, if you crash into something. But there are some huge ones. There are 5,400 objects which are bigger than a meter. And no one wants to crash into one of those. The amount of space junk in orbit, we, we've known that space junk is a huge issue for decades, but it's now just enormous issue. <laughs> so it's like, I, I like this, Felix, that you're like, happy holidays, the apocalypse is coming. <laughs> <laughs> it's only coming if you're in orbit, though. So the, like, okay, fair, in, terms fair. Of, in terms of cautionary tales, the lesson here is don't go into orbit. <laughs> fair. Yes. What people are really worried about is that one big piece of space junk hits another big piece of space junk and just makes lots and lots of little baby Which pieces has happened. Of space that junk. does yeah. actually happen and I, has happened. It's one of the reasons why there's 130 million little pieces. Yeah. I wonder how little the pieces can get and still be 
uh, a problem because presumably many of these pieces we just can't even track because they're too small. It's true. Do you have a number, Tim? I do have a number. I have a Christmas number for you. It is uh, 0.3%. Any guesses? It's Christmas. Anna? Mm, I'm not sure. Is, is this something um, to do with um, like the statistical route of Santa's sleigh when he's delivering presents? It's not fair of me to ask because the numbers are always mysterious. 0.3% is the contribution of Christmas spending to the US economy. Uh, as calculated by Joel Waldfogel, he he of oh, Scroogenomics. He, he, yes. he of the, the, the dead weight loss, loss of Christmas, which yeah. is the, the standard um, subject of every single lazy columnist come around Christmas time. They're like, oh, let me talk about the I, dead weight. I love the dead weight cross, uh, loss of Christmas. <laughs> but this this time I'm talking about Christmas cards, so I'm varying things. But, but 0.3% is how much how of much? the US economy can sensibly be attributed to Christmas. To Christmas spending, yes. Uh, and the way that Waldfogel does this is he uh, basically compares retail spending in November with December and with January. And it's higher in December. So that's a, a rough and ready way of measuring the, the Christmas boom. And I think for a lot of people, they would, they would be surprised that it's that small. It's also, by the way, it used to be bigger in the US, it used to be three times bigger. Oh my God, I want to see ago. the time series. It used to be bigger, and it also is bigger in certain other countries. So people who worry about modern Christmas consumerism in the U.S., you know, could it be much worse? I kind of think it makes sense, right? Because as our as consumption becomes a bigger and bigger part of the economy, you're going to be consuming more all year long. So it's you're it, whereas in the past day. that would have been, you know, you, <laughs> exactly, absolutely. Um, Anna, do you have a number? I do. Mine is 4%. So there was a Pew study related to Christmas. And this is supposedly the... So 4% of Americans say the thing they most look forward to in Christmas is giving and getting gifts. And I think that Americans are lying. Because I I think... I'm like, that is nonsense. They're like, 70% is spending time with family and friends. And that, 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 that's lovely, but like, I, I'm sorry. I, I don't buy it. You, you think they're giving the politically correct answer? Agreed. Agreed. So, um, happy holidays to everyone. And many thanks to Tim for squeezing into an Oxfordshire soundproof studio with me. It's and been a delight to squeeze, squeeze anywhere with we, you, we Felix. Will, we will squeeze further on the next time I'm in the UK. Many thanks to the good folks at Soundworks Studios in Oxfordshire for hosting us. Many thanks to Jessamine Molly for producing. Many thanks to you all for listening. And we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.